Welcome back, and thanks for joining me again. We've thus far been looking at the world of configuration spaces. Today, we use configuration spaces not based on the world of particle motions, but in the world of evolutionary change. Now, we know that living things inherit traits from their parents. This has been used by mankind throughout history to grow better crops and raise different kinds of animals, which can be adaptive to climates and terrains through selective breeding. However, the modern science of genetics, whose goal is to understand this concept of inheritance, only began with the work of Gregor Mendel in the mid-1800s. Now, Mendel, a monk and a scientist, was often called the father of genetics. And he showed that pea plants inherit traits via what are called genes. A popular theory in the 1800s during Mendel's time was that the idea of blending inheritance, where, where organisms inherit a smooth blending of traits from their parents, a continuous way this works. But Mendel's work disproved this. He showed that traits are discrete chunks, discrete combinations of genes rather than a continuous blend. Well, the big question in evolutionary theory today is to find the correct relationship between certain organisms based on genetic data. Now, this involves ideas in mathematics, in biology, in chemistry, and computer science. For example, in biology, you need to understand the biological structure, use chemical ideas between how these genes and proteins and enzymes are interacting, and throw all of these uh, amounts of data into a computer system to actually give you an answer. Now, the mathematics forms a framework in which we can look at this. Now, we will look at this immense problem, of course, from a mathematical vantage point, because of what we've been studying, especially through the language of shapes. Now, this lecture shows a method of doing this using our techniques of higher dimensional study. Indeed, we create a configuration space that keeps track of all such evolutionary data. Our configuration space is the world in which the evolutionary data is held. Well, the idea of phylogenetics is a powerful one. Phylogenetics is the study of evolutionary relationships. It's not just genetics, but phylogenetics, a relationship among various groups of organisms. Now, one way to keep track of these relationships between these organisms is a phylogenetic tree. Now, sometimes these are called evolutionary trees. A phylogenetic tree is a mathematical tree structure which shows the relationship between species believed to have a common ancestor. So let's take a look at a phylogenetic tree of cats. Here you see this tree structure. It's made up of vertices and edges connecting them up. Here's a visual description of the relationship between these different cats that the trees give. Now notice just from this tree, we can we can quickly deduce which cats are more related to one another than other ones. For example, the Sphinx cat we see here is closely related to the, the Norwegian forest cat, which is not that far, but yet somehow related to the Persian cat we see over here. These are quite far in relationships to the Vietnamese cat or the Siamese cats we see here. The tree structure provides the sense of heredity of relationships. Now, this mathematical tree can be used to keep track of several notions rather than just genetic information of organisms. 
it is useful for languages. For example, it can help answer questions if you have a phylogenetic tree of languages as to which languages are closer to one another. A phylogenetic tree of languages could say something like that languages of, of Chinese, Mandarin, and, uh, and Korean and Japanese languages are more related to one another than, say, the, the Romance languages of, of French and uh, of, of, of Spanish. Now, it's useful also for, for studying of cultures to, to keep track of the spread of people groups. How have the groups of people evolved over time in terms of interacting with other groups and, and breeding and multiplying to, to create new people group structures? And it's also useful for social structures. For example, there's something called the Mathematics Genealogy Project. It, it gives me a phylogenetic data of PhD students and their thesis advisors. You get your advisor and the, the branches from the advisor are the students that the advisor has. Now they themselves can have more PhD students under them and you get this tree structure. For example, you can say that my history for my advisor goes to Jack Marava at Johns Hopkins. And past him, if you go further back in time, eventually you actually get to Euler. So I'm actually descended as, as one of Euler's students, his great, 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 great grand students. Indeed, it can even be used in literature. So consider an example. There's an article written by Adrian Barbrook, Christopher Howe, Norman Blake, and Peter Robinson called The Phylogeny of the Canterbury Tales. Now these, these people that I've listed are faculty whose, whose work focuses on biochemistry, humanities, and learning development. Things you would never think fit together. Well, they looked at the wife of Bat's prologue in Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. And it turns out there are about 80 different manuscripts, 80 different versions floating around of this wife of Bat's prologue from the Canterbury Tales. And the question is, which one of these 80 manuscripts is the original? Which is, which is the closest to the original? Well, how can we do this? How can you, given 80 manuscripts, find which one is closest to the original? Well, maybe you can do some kind of dating in terms of the, the way the paper is made. But a lot of these have been transcribed by scribes or are rewritten over and over again. So, so maybe something that's written recently could actually be the true manuscript in terms of authenticity. And maybe there's a, there's a transcription error that has propagated over time to get, get us many false copies. How do we find out which the real one was? What was Chaucer really writing? Well, what they did was they actually took the the manuscript itself, the letters, the words here, and they plugged it in to a, to, a, to a computer data system that handles phylogenetic information. The genes themselves were now the, the words of this manuscript. And they poured all 80 different manuscripts into the system, and it gave them a phylogenetic tree structure to show that which manuscripts are closely related to one another. The text itself becomes the genetic data. And notice that computer techniques used by biologists to reconstruct a mathematical phylogenetic tree is useful to literature. Look at the intersection of all these worlds, computer science, biology, mathematics, literature. Wow, this is the world we live in today. Now, although a phylogenetic tree is highly useful, it is not enough for us. Indeed, we need to consider not just one tree, but an entire space of trees. Now, why do we need a space of trees? Well, different genes give different tree structures to compare. So let me explain. 
Imagine we want to compare different types of grass to see what the best kind is or how the, the different grass are related in terms of using the grass for a golf course or using the grass for your lawn. And, and let's pretend we pick the gene of the, of the different pieces of grass that, that worry about color. And if you use this particular gene, the, the biological computer science model will give us a phylogenetic tree showing the relationships of the different kinds of grass based on color. It'll say, ah, the, these two pieces of grass are related, and this is not related at all until way earlier in history when it originally branched off. But if we used a different gene, say we used something that measured the thickness or the, or the sturdiness of the grass, instead of color, we use this. Well, if you use this gene structure, you get a completely different tree. It'll say that, oh, these two aren't, aren't related at all. Maybe they're related in color, but in terms of thickness, they're far apart. Well, we get different trees for different gene structures, for different characteristics of the grass we're measuring. So how can we pick which genetic data, which tree structure is indeed correct? Well, they're all correct. They're all giving me different pieces of information, different facets of looking at the same problem. So to find the best phylogenetic tree, we do what we do with numbers. If somebody gives us a collection of numbers and it says they're all good, how do we find the best number? We can't pick this one or this one or this one. We actually average the numbers. And similarly, we need to average our trees. Well, numbers all exist in the space of numbers, the number line. That's how we get an average number. Similarly, we need to build a space of trees where we can average our trees to get another tree as our answer. Now, in order to build a space of trees, so our averaging works, we need to create a language of trees. Each tree has a root. It's the foundational place where the tree comes from. And each tree has branches that you see here. These are the edges. From a mathematical perspective, you have this vertex, which is the root. You have these edges coming from it. And each tree also has leaves. These are the very tips. These are the vertices, which have only one edge incident to it. Now, notice how the tree communicates relationships. Notice that the internal edges and nodes are crucial. The internal branches are where all the activity takes place. The edges, the ones at the very tip, the leaves, the edges next to the leaves are absolutely useless because the internal branches are where the splitting takes place. It's where the branching takes place. Indeed, by the time you come to the, the leaves, the very boundary edges, it gives you no new data. The internal branches communicate the structure of relationships. And also notice something. The trees that we're looking at are in space, not on a sheet of paper. If we look here, if we look at this tree, one, two, three, labeled like this, it's actually the same tree as this one, one, three, two. The ordering doesn't matter because my trees are actually three edges at a fixed point, and I'm not ordering the edges in terms of how they look on a sheet of paper. They're just edges floating in space. It just says that one, two, and three are all related together. Similarly here, the one with the two, three branch is the same thing as the one with the three, two branch, because it says two and three are more closely related to one another than they are to one. On the other hand, if we look at it over here, we see the one, the two, three, it's distinct from the one, two, three. One combines the two and three next to each other, the other combines the one and two. So they're actually different objects in this particular case. So I don't want us to get confused when we talk about things as we draw them on a sheet of paper. They're really floating in space. So how do we go about building a space of trees? Well, we're gonna follow the work of Lou Belera, Susan Holmes, and Karen Voltman, who offer one way of building such tree spaces. 
Now, our tree space will be a configuration space where each point in our configuration space will be a tree. Remember previously, each point in my configuration space was a particular ordering or a particular configuration of robots on lines, particles on lines. But now my point in my configuration space is going to be a tree, a tree of possibilities is what I want to build. Now, they keep track of trees, and how are we going to build this configuration space that keeps track of trees? Well, we are going to not just look at topology, but we're going to look at geometry. Each point in our tree space will be a tree where the internal branches have lengths. And the lengths somehow encode evolutionary time. So if you have a branching of one, and then over here you have a branch with two and three branching off, the longer this edge is that pulls away from one, where the two and three pull away, somehow tell you that that's evolutionary time in terms of how long it's taken. We can represent time in terms of length. Now the length can shrink all the way down to zero, which means there's no time, all these three are at one spot, and you can start pulling the two and three away. And as you do, you're saying time has evolved in terms of when this partition took place. So let's consider this example. Look here. Here we see that there are four lengths shown, each of which can be shrunk or expanded to keep track of time for us. But these four are independent. In other words, I can shrink or expand each one of these four internal edges the way I want, which means I'm already dealing with a four-dimensional world. I have four dimensions of freedom. A tree structure that looks like this is in 4D. Well, let's back up a bit, all right, and start with a simple example before we jump in headlong into four dimensions and higher. Let's look at three objects, and we just want to know the relationship between those three objects. Let's try to build a space of trees with three leaves. Well, with three leaves, it turns out we have four different tree structures. We can have all of them, one, two, and three, all stuck at one vertex, that root. Or we can have one, two separated from three, one, three separated from two, and two, three separated from one. Those are the three tree configurations I can possibly draw. Now, in our configuration space, each tree with an internal edge turns out to be represented by a ray. So let me explain. In our configuration space, in the space of possibilities, each tree with this internal edge is a ray. Why? Let's look at this first one, where the 1, 2 has been branched away, has been pulled away from 3. Well, I can have the 1, 2, and I can have the 1, 2 being pulled all the way down till it's touching 3, so its length is 0. So it starts at length 0, then I can pull a little bit more, its length is 1, pull a little bit more, its length is 2, and I can pull it as much as I want. Well, I'm representing this pull by an array of possibilities. The value can be zero length, one length, two length. Remember, it can't be a negative. That doesn't make any sense. So it starts at this point and goes in a ray direction. It's not a line. It's not a line segment, but a ray. Now, notice we have this one root. This one, two, three is one root. And notice how all three trees, all of these rays, are related to this one root. I can shrink the one, three, pulled out tree all the way down till it's a one, two, three combination. I can shrink the two, three tree that's been pulled out all the way down till it's a one, two, three configuration. Indeed, all of them can be pulled down to this one root, and you can think of it as starting at this root and stretching it in three different ways. So our configuration space, or our tree space, looks something like this. Notice what happens. There's this root, which is a point in my tree space, and I have three rays emitting from that point. Basically, I've started with a one, two, three configuration of those three, um, of those three leaves, and I'm going to pull the two, three out, or I can pull the one, three out, or I can pull the one, two out. And as I do, this configuration space are these three rays that meet in the middle. 
Let's just see what happens as we walk around our tree space. Remember, this is a configuration space. So a point on the space represents an entire tree. So if I pick a point on the space right here, that's where you've one and two pulled out a little bit. Now, as I walk towards the central point in my configuration space, that one, two value shrinks down. It's a different tree. Remember, the lengths are changing. It's a different tree. It's a different tree until I come all the way down to that central one, two, three. That's a different tree. Now I can start pulling instead of the one, two, I can start pulling the two, three up. And as I do that, it's a different tree. It's a different tree. And I've changed. This is how I walk around this world. Now, a technical point for drawing is that since we don't want to deal with infinitely large spaces, this ray that goes on forever physically for us to visualize, we make an artificial constraint for the sake of visualization. We simply say that we can pull these edges as much as we want, but, but there's a limit to how much we can pull. There's just there's a, this upper bound as to the worst case scenario. So thus visually things look like this. Instead of them being rays that go on forever, you can pull them as much as you want until you get to the end. Now, this is an artificial constraint we're placing just so we can visually draw these easier. Well, what about that tree space with four leaves? This is only a tree space with three leaves. It gives us this kind of trivalent branching. Well, let's start with the root for tree space with four leaves. Well, starting with the root, we see that there is one possible root, just the one, two, three, four. That's the only way you can have all of a meeting at that point. Now we can stretch out this, this base root in two ways. One way, for example, we can pull out the one, two, three. We can grab that and start stretching it out and getting an entire in interval of possibilities. Or we can pull the, just the one, two part and stretch that out and we can get an interval of possibilities. Remember, legally I can stretch, stretch it out as much as I want, but I have this artificial restraint that said, let's just for drawing sake, stretch it out to a certain limit. So I have an interval this way and an interval this way. Indeed, I can do both at the same time to get an entire square of possibilities. I can stretch the one, two, three, or independently, I can just stretch the one, two. And any point in the square tells me a combination of how much I've stretched each. In reality, this is an entire quadrant, a quarter of the plane. But remember, because of my restriction, I get the square. Now, let's just focus on this one edge, this edge, central edge right here. As I focus on this edge, notice this edge is where the one, two, three has been pulled. But from this edge, I can pull the two, three over here to get this. Or I can pull the one, three over here to get this. Or I can pull the one, two, like I did earlier, to get this. These objects that I'm obtaining are entire squares, just like before. So from this edge, I can walk to this square, this two, three, this square, this one, three, or this square, this one, two. Thus, three squares meet along this edge, as you can see here. This is a formation of the space of trees. But this is just part of the tree space. What if instead of focusing around an edge to see three possible squares meet, we actually focused around the squares themselves? Look what happens. I can start at this square. This edge gets me to this other square. But this edge here, by pushing and pulling in a different direction, gets me to this square. And this edge gets me to this square. And beautifully, by pushing and pulling, moving in this tree space, I can actually show that these five squares fit together and lock perfectly. Indeed, notice a pentagon appears. Hmm, interesting, a pentagon. We've seen that before. So what is the big picture? Well, in a big picture setting, we have 15 squares in space with four leaves that we have to deal with. We only concern a couple of them. 
Remember earlier, with only three leaves, we only had those three rays to worry about. Now we have these 15 squares to worry about. Well, from the perspective of edges, three squares meet, and from the perspective of squares, five of them glue around a pentagonal formation. So we get the following tree space. This is my space of trees. This is my configuration space. Notice a lot of things going on. Each one of these objects that I've drawn is in actuality a square. I had to draw it in perspective so I can actually fit all of this onto the screen. But notice also, this is not my entire space. There's some gluing going on. I need to glue that edge here to go to this edge here. I need to glue this edge with this edge. And I need to glue this edge with this edge. After I do all these gluings, I get the entire tree space. Wow, it is a complicated object. Indeed, these aren't really squares. These are, remember, quadrants that go on forever, which makes it even more complicated if we remove our artificial restriction of edge lengths. Now, what happens if I look at that root, that central spot right there where we have the one, two, three, and four, all of them meeting together, and I just take a knife and I slice at that root, and I look at the structure around it. What do I get? We get this beautiful graph structure that enables you to see the complexity of the structure of gluing of those objects. Now, here, notice that each edge is the slice of some square, and three squares meet along an edge, as you can see represented here, where those three things glue at that point. And the squares glue to form pentagons. Here's one pentagon, but notice there's several pentagonal structures you can get. Remember, in reality, this space is not made up of 15 squares, but 15 pieces, which are quadrants. Well, what happens in general? Well, for n leaves, not just for three leaves or four leaves, but for n leaves, we turn out to have an n minus two dimensional configuration space. Our tree space is that big. Now, the regions, the regions are made. For three leaves, the regions are just half lines, rays. Now, for four leaves, the regions are quarter planes, quadrants. For five leaves, the regions turn out to be an eighth of three-dimensional space, octants. Indeed, for three leaves, we have three pieces, three of these rays. For four leaves, we have 15 squares. For five leaves, we have 105 pieces. For six leaves already, we have a 945-piece, four-dimensional chambers that we have to glue together. Given n leaves, one can create such a configuration space where each point in this space is a geometric phylogenetic tree. Indeed, Bilera, Holmes, and Voltman showed this beautiful result that one can average trees in this world. Great. So, are there other spaces of trees which we can create? We've, we've looked at one example how we can start constructing this. Well, it turns out there are numerous models. This is something that mathematicians and biologists and computer scientists are very much interested in today as I speak. Let me close today by briefly describing one more model. Well, to construct this space of trees, we need to revisit our old friend, the associahedron. Consider these four letters. Let's look at these again, right? These A, B, C, D, we saw these in terms of associativity of the four letters like this, A, B times C times D. We also saw these as triangulations of a pentagon. AB with a slice that triangulates that part of the pentagon with a C slicing it off and with a D on the side. We also can see the exact same structure as a tree with four leaves. I can redraw ABCD as its following tree. AB branching off from C, branching off from D, all the way coming to the roots. Now, what is the proof that these are all related? Look at this picture. I can actually take the tree structure and embed it, just place it inside that pentagon with the diagonals, the triangulation of the pentagon. Indeed, the proof somehow is a, is a duality. Every time you see an edge of a pentagon, you give it this leaf structure.
Thus, the associahedron itself can be seen as capturing tree data. Well, our goal then is to create a space made of associahedra, because then it'll give us a space of trees. If associahedra captures tree data in a certain way, not the same way as the Belera Holmes Voltman way, but it's a different way, then, then we will create a space of trees. Now, for a particular ordering, like this A, B, C, D of letters, we get an associahedron. Our space of associahedra will be made of different orderings. We don't just care about the A, B, C, D ordering. We might care about the B, A, C, D ordering. And different orderings will have different copies of the sosahedron. Now, the space we will build is not only showing up in work related to phylogenetics, it classically appears in the work of theoretical physicists. So we will now build the space of sosahedra, and it is quite advanced material. So I just want to peek under the hood and see what current research is about. So we begin by looking at the compactification of particles on a sphere. So if you take a sphere and look at three particles that are fixed on the sphere, to staple three particles on the sphere, look at the other particles that can move all around the sphere, which cannot collide with the fixed ones, nor can they collide with each other. Well, we can compactify the space, study the ways these particles can collide with each other and with the fixed particles, called the Deline-Mumford moduli space of, uh, of curves. And this forms like this compactification of the space, which is foundational to ideas in string theory and algebraic geometry. Now, it was studied and propelled by Fields medalist David Mumford, who got his Fields medal in 1974, and Pierre Deligne, who got his in 1978. Indeed, Edward Witten, who got his Fields medal in 1990, enabled this space to appear in string theoretic ideas. If you have three Fields medalists caring about some space, it's probably going to be important. Let's take a look at a special version of the space. Instead of looking at particles moving on a sphere with three fixed points, I want to look at particles moving on a circle with three fixed points. So instead of a two-dimensional sphere, I'm going to shift my dimensions one into looking at particles moving on a circle. So what happens when we have, say, two particles that are free to move on a circle with three fixed points? Well, my friends, we have seen this before. Here we have two particles moving on a circle with three fixed points. This traces out for us this torus. Remember, the sides are glued together of the square with these places of particle collisions, these lines of collisions. Now, here, we can compactify the space. What does compactification mean? We're trying to absorb places of multiple collision. So where are the places of intense collision? Well, here is when my red, my green, and my fixed particle collide. Here's my red and green and fixed particle collide. And here, in this torus, where my red, green, and fixed particle collide, and what I do here is what I did before. Remember how I used to slice the, um, the simplex to get the sosahedron because I want to extract information? Now I'm going to do that slicing, not on one particular object, but the entire collection of objects, the entire space. So I'm going to take my torus, I'm going to slice pieces of this torus out, and this is my compactified object. This is what Mumford and Deline and Witten care about from a one-dimensional circle perspective. Now notice, look at, all the, look at all the triangles and squares we get on the left side, and they all become, after I do my slicing, pentagons. All my triangles and squares have become pentagons, they have become associahedra. Now, this world is made up of always two particles can move and collide, giving us a beautiful space tiled by a sosahedra. But notice where those triangles and pentagons, excuse me, those triangles and squares come from. A square comes when my two particles on my circle, 
is one is locked in between two fixed points, the other is locked between two fixed points. I get an interval times an interval, which is a square. Now my triangle comes when those two particles are all in the same chamber of my triangle. So thus they're stuck in the same chamber, which gives me a triangle of possibilities. Remember, two particles in the same interval gives me a triangle of possibilities. Now what about for three particles free to move? Well, let's take a look. For three particles free to move, we have three different chambers that we can get. We can have all three particles on one part of the interval of my circle, which gives me a tetrahedron of possibilities. We talked about this earlier for configuration space of particle movements. We can have those three particles, two on one interval and one on the other. This gives me a, a triangle times an interval, a prism of possibilities, and each particle can have its own chamber, which gives me a cube of possibilities. In fact, this is the only kind of way these particles can be distributed. Well, what happens if I look at three particles and look at the entire space, not just chambers, but the whole space? We get something that looks like this. It is a three-dimensional torus with numerous cuts. Now, why is it a torus? Because the three particles can move in a circle. Circle times circle times circle gives us a torus. But these collision actions give us these cuts of these torus. And notice what used to be a simplex now becomes this three-dimensional isosahedron here. What used to be a triangular prism now becomes a three-dimensional isosahedron here. And what was a cube now becomes a three-dimensional isosahedron here. This is our alternate space of trees, this beautiful three-dimensional torus with these special cuts. Now, just like the Bilera-Holmes-Voltman space, this space can be generalized for any dimensions by simply considering more particles moving, more elements in your tree structure. Well, what has started as an adventure in studying higher dimensions has led us to the world of configuration spaces and to the current forefront of research. We have seen the uses of configuration spaces from the world of particle collisions to keeping track of phylogenetic tree data and the world of trees. Well, we switch gears in our next lecture as we enter the world of chaos and fractals. Stay tuned.